Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Brian Deere, the author of The Doctor Who Fooled the World, Science, Deception, and the War on Vaccines. A reporter uncovers the secrets behind the scientific scam of the century. The news breaks first as a tale of fear and pity. Doctors at a London hospital claim a link between autism and a vaccine given to millions of children, MMR. Young parents are terrified, immunization rates slump, and as worldwide anti-vax movement kicks off, all diseases return to sicken and kill. But a veteran reporter isn't so sure and sets out on an epic investigation. Battling establishment cover-ups, smear campaigns and gagging lawsuits, he exposes rigged research and secret schemes, the heartbreaking plight of families struggling with disability and the scientific deception of our time. Here's the story of Andrew Wakefield, a man in search of greatness who stakes, stakes his soul on big ideas that if right, might transform lives. But when the facts don't fit, he can't face failure. He'll do whatever it takes to succeed. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Brian to the show. Hello, Galena. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Yeah, it's good to get the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you. Brilliant. So I'm going to start by asking you, um, as we're living through all of these unprecedented times uh, of the pandemic, um, how are you? And how has the pandemic affected you and your work? Well, I mean, it's not hurt me as badly as some people who are uh, losing their businesses and their jobs and in some cases their health and their lives. Uh, but it means that I can't promote my book by going out and traveling, which is what I hope to do. And it means that I'm stuck at home pretty much the whole time. London at the moment is lockdown so it's actually a criminal offense to um to go out outdoors unless you're going outdoors for exercise or uh essential shopping and so it's just a question of being stuck in a in a in indoors really for day after day and that gets on my nerves but as i say it's it's nothing as bad as um what a lot of people are facing Interesting. And how did you uh, adjust to this this new lifestyle? Well, um, I don't know yet. I mean, it's it's getting on my nerves, really, to be um, unable to go out and not to be able to go shopping, um, not to be able to go into central London and do anything, can't go to the movies, don't have sex. You know, I was in a taxi yesterday and I said I haven't had sex in, for a year. And he said, he said, don't you worry about that. I haven't had sex with my wife for eight months. She said she, she won't have sex with me unless I agree to have another baby. So other people's problems are always worse than my own. 
Well, at least he doesn't have to show the uh, certificate of the COVID test. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I thought at one point I might have it. I had a strange illness that lasted about two days and I couldn't, I couldn't walk very well. I was extremely tired, but it didn't go to my chest and then it passed. And I wondered if it was flu. I mean, I'd had a flu vaccine about uh, a month before, but I don't know what it was. So I, I might have had it. I don't know. Well, none of us know, really. Um, so, uh, I mean, I had a I had a test, but the the test is pretty unreliable. I mean, I know enough about the polymerase chain reaction to know that uh, it can be a pretty unreliable test. But anyway, but anyway, so no, I mean, it gives me an opportunity to get with my work, and um, and that's what I've been doing. Excellent. Right. So, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? So, what uh, were you interested in when you were? Um, young student and how did it lead you to start uh, being interested in being investigative journalist is that right well I mean I went to university I went to the University of Warwick which uh, is quite a good university it's uh, improved its reputation in the UK and there I got involved in student publishing of various kinds and um, after that I got a job with the campaign for nuclear disarmament in London which uh, runs a campaign against nuclear weapons. Didn't succeed. We've still got them, but um, that's where I started. And then I went into newspapers and ended up at the Sunday Times, firstly as a business news editor where I was editing copy and working on page production and then moved over to reporting. And the Sunday Times being a Sunday newspaper, we... We used to spend, as a rule, a typical story, we'd spend about four days on it, sometimes a bit longer. And I kind of moved over into doing longer pieces wherever I could. My main interest was always social issues, um, poverty, homelessness, um, prisons, you know, penal policy, um, welfare, things like that. But um, I got quite interested in in health management and health um the, the politics of health. And in the course of that, I started doing investigations of the pharmaceutical industry. And that was really, I mean, that was really what I spent a lot of time on. Uh, then I went to the United States. And when I came back from the United States, I took up doing magazine work where I could spend six months or even a year sometimes on one story. So um, in the course of that, I got involved in an investigation into a, a, a scare over vaccine safety way back in the 1970s and 1980s over a vaccine, a triple vaccine against diphtheria, tetanus and pertussis. And people believed that that vaccine caused brain damage to children. And for reasons which I won't go into because it takes rather a long time, I uh, did a, a, a year-long investigation into that. Looking back, it was a retrospective investigation because the issues had, had moved on by the time I got to them. And I spent a year on that. And um, among my pharmaceutical work, and then I did a, just by chance, I did another investigation, well, I'd say, for which took about six months, also for the magazine, which... Uh, was an investigation into what claimed to be the world's first AIDS vaccine, AIDSvax, which was um, developed in the late 1990s. And then in 2003, it had, um, it had carried out, well, the years before that, but in 2003, they gave the results from a 
phase three clinical trial of this so-called world's first AIDS vaccine. And as I had uh, predicted in my magazine investigation, it didn't work. Nobody ever thought it would work. And essentially, it was a scam by which some former staff at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, the American uh, Public Health Agency, had gone off and set up a business in San Francisco. And um, it never stood any chance of, of working this vaccine. But I think they made a fair bit of money out of it. And um, and that gave me more insight into vaccines. And then uh, in 2003, that year, in fact, that year that that um, clinical trial failed, I was asked to look at the controversy in the United Kingdom into in the uh, concerning the MMR vaccine, the triple measles, mumps and rubella vaccine, which had become very controversial in the late 1990s. And by 2003, British confidence in that vaccine had reached such a, a terrible level uh, with falling acceptance of the vaccine and um, constant media coverage uh, suge well, of suggestions that the vaccine caused autism in children. And I was just asked to look at that as a routine assignment, which I expected would last about... Um, two weeks, I think it was, two or three weeks maybe. And uh, that was in late 2003. We published the first piece in February 2004. And I'm still involved in that investigation now in the sense that um, it's the it's the subject of my book, The Doctor Who Fooled the World, which uh, I think you want to talk to me about. Excellent. Yeah. So that's a really impressive body of work uh, uh, that you have. And what uh, really strikes me in your work is your methodological and really measured approach that you take. However, you're really relentless in actually probing the, uh, the claims. So can you tell us whether this is the part of your personality or did you develop it as you were going uh, sort of ahead? No, it's just, it's just another story like any other. It just took a long time and uh, involves many different elements. So, um, no, I don't think there's anything particularly um, about me to um, to highlight in that regard. Uh, it's more the it's more the book itself and the 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 content of the, of the material really that I think is uh, critical. Excellent. So, uh, can you tell me then how come did you write this book overall? So we already have all of this work. So why do you think this book was important to be written? Well, what I tried to do, I mean, there are a lot of books around on vaccines and on the scientific method and on medical issues, but um, they tend to be, well, they are, they, they tend to be books where people hold forth on their opinions. They tell you what to think. They're kind of long lectures. And I think enormous numbers of nonfiction books are like that. They're like somebody just lecturing you, telling you about this, that, and the other. I didn't want to do that. What I've tried to do, well, I have, I think, in The Doctor Who Fooled the World, is tell the story of the origins of the modern anti-vaccine movement, but through the real people and the specific facts which brought that about. So it's really the story of how an acorn of deception way back in the 1990s that uh, was at the heart of my investigation has grown into today's anti-vaccine campaign and anti-vaccine movement which we're seeing around the world which is having such an impact or attempting to have such an impact 
in the pandemic? So uh, what also really, um, hello? Hi. Oh yeah, yeah, you can hear me. Huh? Okay, I'm gonna start this soon. Um, so what also really stood out for me in the book is the brutal honesty, how you discuss all of these uh, things. You just, you give your things exactly as they are and uh, contrasting to what you actually explained as a long lecture uh, type of um, narrative that we usually uh, read. So why do you think it's important to speak to people that frankly like this? Well, I don't know about it. It's frankly, it's 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 uh, what I'm saying. What I've been saying is it's a, it's a it's a it's narrative nonfiction. So it's telling a story. So it tells you how the um, anti-vaccine movement emerged, how how individual people were involved, what they did, what they said, based on the documents, based on court transcripts, uh, based on my own investigative findings, which took up an enormous period of time. So there was really only one way to set it out as a story and a lot of people um particularly doctors who've who've reviewed it so it reads like a thriller um which is good because in fact i was talking to, to a, a a book um a book club last night where they were all professors mostly in mostly in um in uh, the, the more physical sciences not so much in, in involved in medicine and they were all saying that um they read the book incredibly quickly i mean it's a very very fast read and so that i think is a is a sign that my strategy has worked because i find these books that lecture about issues i find them very boring and um because they don't tell a tale they don't have a narrative drive they don't pull you forward in a way that i think good writing and good a narrative nonfiction can so that's that's the way I did it, um, and um, and I think in the course of it I expose what a lot of medical scientists regard to be the most damaging scientific fraud in a hundred years, and um, so it's a it's a it's I think it's a worthwhile book and uh, and because I played such a key role in the investigation that um, revealed all this stuff I I'm I'm really a character in the story I become I become a um, a player in this whole thing so it's it's a kind of a mix of of what i've been doing and what um uh and the subject that i'm investigating but but threaded together as a narrative um so why is the book uh, really timely at this moment exactly well i mean we're we're it, it, well i'm not in a funny way it's it, in practical terms it's not timely because mm. we had it we had it ready to go at the beginning of the pandemic. So it doesn't include the pandemic. So it brings you all the way up to the point at which this thing begins. And it sets out the, the, uh, the story of how the, all the websites and anti-vaccine groups and, um, and uh, Facebook campaigns and things like that, where they all came from, where the infrastructure of skepticism towards the efforts to to uh, uh, to deal with the pandemic by by means of um, uh, vaccination uh, was set up, but we didn't actually have anything on the 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 uh, pandemic itself because the book had already been printed just at the point at which it began. So so the book was then held back for a few months because all the book trade was all shut down. 
because of the uh, the pandemic. And then it was released just a few months ago. So it's been released uh, at a time when everyone's talking about vaccines. That's true. And it speaks to uh, an important aspect of that. But the only problem is we, we're having trouble selling it because all the bookshops are shut. All across America, the bookshops are shut. <laughs> They're all shut in London. And uh, Amazon keeps selling out. So if people want to uh, buy it um, and Amazon appears to be sold out, don't worry because more supplies are on the way to them. But it's, it's, So it's kind of a good way in the sense that um, vaccines are now on everybody's mind. But uh, logistically, it's a bit awkward for us in terms of getting that book out and getting the story out to people. So, um, But uh, no, it's doing quite well, but um, it's not doing as well as it might have done if the bookshops were open. Can you set... Uh us the scene of where your investigation started at the heart of this book is a doctor by the name of andrew wakefield hence the title of the book the doctor who fooled the world now this man was a adult gastroenterologist at a london hospital in fact the royal free hospital where he appeared to be doing research into bowel disease and in the course of this, uh, in February 1998, he published a paper in the Lancet Medical Journal, which many people, and I think the medical profession generally around the world, regards as the world's number two general medical journal. The first is the New England Journal of Medicine uh, from the United States. The Lancet comes out of the UK. And most of the top, in fact, all of the top medical journals and science journals are are from the United States or the UK simply because English is the language of science. So uh, he published a paper in the Lancet Medical Journal in February 1998, which reported on 12 children. It was a case series of 12 children. And these children were said in the Lancet to have a new syndrome, a new a new constellation of uh, illnesses, including both autism, a serious developmental issue, and inflammatory bowel disease. And it was just 12 children. And it created an enormous furor in the United Kingdom. It set off this uh, mass concern. Newspapers and television covered the publication of this paper. And... um, Vaccination rates started to decline because parents became concerned that there was a link between the MMR children's vaccine, which this guy was talking about in this paper, and autism and what he said was a new inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, It was just 12 children. It was a case series. Now, the fact there were only 12 children caused a lot of people to criticize the paper, but that wasn't a valid criticism because when you think about it, uh, I mean, autism itself was um, was uh, reported initially in 1943 and as, as, as in, on, on the basis of uh, 12 children. That was what led to the classic description of autism. AIDS was first, what became known as AIDS, was first identified in, um, in uh, five gay men in Los Angeles. So the fact there were only 12 children is not a big issue. But uh, it set off a huge amount of concern in the UK. And, and this paper really was, the, was, as I say, the acorn upon which, from which the modern anti-vaccine 
movement emerged because of the publicity that it uh, attracted. Um, and um, Wakefield, this, this Dr. Wakefield, who presented himself as if he was a, um, uh, a morally uh, and conscience-driven uh, researcher, a scientist, who was, um, who was bringing forward this new information about the children's vaccine, MMR, as a matter of public duty. And that's how he appeared to be. And he appeared to be reporting on 12 children who'd turned up at the um, uh, hospital bowel clinic. This hospital was the Royal Free in North London. Not a particularly, uh, not a particularly outstanding hospital, but anyway, there was this hospital. And at first sight, you'd have to think, well, it could be that this man had discovered the or observed the first snapshot of a hidden epidemic of potentially catastrophic injuries to children. It might just be that other people at other hospitals uh, didn't notice that, uh, that these children were out there. Because what had happened was the parents of these children who turned up at the hospital, parents of 12 children, they told a particular kind of story. Two out of three of them, eight out of 12, of the kids' parents said that they'd, their children had been developing perfectly normally and they took them to have their MMR vaccine, their measles, mumps and rubella vaccine. And within just 14 days, within two weeks, some, some of them the next day, some of them a few days later, some of them a week later, but none of them more than two weeks later, they showed the first symptoms of autism and that was what they told the doctors and they they turned up over a period of a few months between 1996 and middle of 1996 and early 1997 and um, that's what was apparently written up in the this paper but what i was able to establish in my investigation was a number of things uh, which came in phases the investigation as a whole was carried out for the Sunday Times of London, for which I've you know worked for since 1981, um, long time, 40 years, which shows what an old man <laughs> I am now, um, and came in three phases. And the first phase of the investigation revealed that far from being an objective researcher motivated by conscience, two years before the paper was published, he had uh, taken up a contract, agreed a contract, to work for a lawyer who was hoping to get a lawsuit going about this vaccine. Not because the law lawyer had any particular evidence against this vaccine, but because really because vaccine litigation is, is very, very big. Lawsuits over vaccines are very big, very expensive, very good for lawyers. And um, this man, Wakefield, this Dr. Wakefield, was working for this lawyer for two years before the paper was published. And he'd been hired to make exactly the kind of case that was made in this paper that he published in The Lancet. So that's, that was the first thing. Along with that, at the same time, and this was published in, in um, February 2004, this was the first stage of the investigation being published in the Sunday Times, we showed that the children who were in this study, far from being just children being brought to a routine clinic were in fact the children of parents who'd been sent to that doctor through an anti-vaccine group. 
Um, and that what we found was that the, the claims that had been made were really the working out of this contract. So this man had an extraordinary conflict of interest, as did the parents of the children enrolled in the study, because they wanted to join the lawsuit. So they would say that there was, they felt there was a link between vaccines and autism, because that's why they'd come to the hospital. So that was the first stage of the investigation. And as a result of that, uh, most of the, nearly all of the authors made uh, made a statement that um, that they didn't find a connection between the MMR vaccine and autism, but nevertheless they believe that the the bowel disease that they claimed that uh, he found was was valid. So that was the first stage. The next stage was that we discovered, or I discovered, and in fact I made a television program about this uh, that that when he'd called for the when he'd. Uh, called this alert to this um, vaccine, uh, made these allegations against this vaccine, he advised parents that they should not use the MMR vaccine, but they should instead use single vaccines against measles, against mumps and against rubella instead of the triple MMR. And he called on the government to withdraw the MMR, to suspend its use. What he didn't say, but what we were able to... Um, able to establish and publish was that he had eight months before the paper was published he'd filed his own patent on his own single measles vaccine so that was the next thing and at the same time as that we found that his theory as to why the vaccine was causing autism he said it was caused by the measles component in the vaccine because it's a it's a live vaccine and um, live, so it has live viruses in it. And so uh, his own laboratory, I was able to establish, had run sophisticated molecular tests on these uh, children and none of them uh, was positive for this virus measles, which he said was persisting in them. So that was the second stage of it. And then the third stage of it was I was able to show that the paper was in fact fraudulent in the sense that he had altered diagnoses, he'd altered um, the histories of the children, he'd misrepresented pathology. And um, so the whole thing was a fraud. It was a fraud executed for money with enormous conflicts of interest. He also had networks of companies he wanted to set up to sell diagnostic kits and his own vaccines and things off the back of the public alarm that um, he'd created. And um, so that was the heart of it. And, and, and um, it resulted in the British Medical Journal publishing an editorial describing this research and this paper, which really launched the modern anti-vaccine movement as an elaborate fraud, in their words, uh, which is what it was. So, so that's, the, that's the core of the story. But the book itself goes much wider than that and goes right back into this man's origins, where he came from, his family background, his early theories and then moves through how he carried out this fraud how um how it led and the, the consequences of it and then moved on into how the 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 scare the alarm the public alarm over the mmr vaccine which was born in the united kingdom spread to the united states and there from the united states to the rest of the world so that countries all over the world all across europe and australasia uh, also 
were rocked by this um, alarm uh, over the allegations that the MMR vaccine was causing autism. So that's kind of the landscape of it um, to to the to the doctor who fooled the world, and um, and that's what um, that's what I've spent all these years preparing and getting organised and fighting off lawsuits and things like that. Yeah. So uh, the book really outlines uh, sort of the origins of the of the scammer, the um, Andrew Wakefield. And uh, why do you think, even with so many red flags, population still bought into it, and even the world population? Well, there weren't any red flags. What What were the red? I don't know. The, 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 people bought people bought into the idea that vaccines cause autism because he published this paper and it got picked up by media, and people thought, well, that that. They thought he was a credible scientist. He, that people thought that there was there was real science behind it. Um, he had twelve co-authors, which were attached to this paper, and um, and uh, so people assumed there might be something in it. And uh, vaccines is, is are things which are quite easy to scare people of. It's possibly because somewhere in people's unconscious mind is the fact that they were stabbed with a needle at some point in their childhood or many points in their childhood and um, so people have a, a natural vulnerability to false claims about vaccines. But also he uh, developed as you say uh, as you say he applied for the patent for the uh, MMR vaccine itself but uh, for the single uh, use no um, so yeah. that's also it's a little bit uh, strange then for his uh, story to claim that uh, the MMR vaccines actually do cause autism and then they're trying to sell another MMR vaccine to the population. No, he wasn't trying uh, uh, he wasn't he wasn't trying to sell MMR. He 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 wasn't promoting MMR. He was saying the government should stop using it. Okay. So he did, uh, what was the patent for? For uh, the second uh... That was for a sing. That was for a single measles for a single vaccine. Measles. For a, what? A, a, a single. See, the MMR is a is a three in one. It's got measles in it. It's got mumps in it. It's got rubella in it. So he was. Um, he had developed. He, he claimed he filed a patent on his own measles vaccine, and then said to people, "Don't have the MMR vaccine for your children. Have single measles vaccines." And he'd taken out a patent on his own single measles vaccine before he published these claims and while he was working with this lawyer. Yeah, so it's really incredible to believe that something like this could go through all of the um, sort of stages of the quality control, like peer review or even ethics board. So how how he was, was he able to manipulate his way through that? Well, he was a very persuasive character. Uh, peer review is not a, peer review is not a, a test of truth. No, no peer reviewer, well, rarely could a peer reviewer ca- conclude whether a paper is true or not. The peer reviewers, but peer review is a, is a system of determining the plausibility of a publication. So uh, a journal, a uh, scientific or medical journal, would, um, would send a, a, a paper they were thinking of publishing to an expert in that field. And that expert in the field could only really comment on whether the, the paper was coherent, whether it... Uh, whether somebody had published the same thing before, whether it was new, and, and they could look for internal consistencies, but they wouldn't be able to tell what was wrong with, if, if it was a case series, they wouldn't be able to review the medical records of the, um, 
of the subjects in the study, in this case, 12 children, uh, they would they wouldn't have that information. Um, so they would just they would just be presented with a single with a paper. Uh, so probably, yeah, the best quality control uh, as a peer review nowadays would be an open access to the data sets uh, and um, um, just professionals around the world looking and all of this. So do you think that uh, in those days, well, a couple of decades ago, the uh, establishment of science was not as open as well for the public scrutiny? Or did you find it easy? No, I think you're getting it completely wrong. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're just not getting it. You're, not, you're just not getting it. Um, it's nothing to do with open access or anything like that. It's the the data that you see. Biomedical journals, whether they're open access or whether they're published and sold for money to libraries, it make it that makes the difference. It's the fact that all people can do is read the text of the paper. So if it says there are these twelve children and they had eight of them had or nine of them, this paper said had autism. Simply reading the paper or whether however it was published wouldn't reveal whether or not it was true. It wouldn't even reveal whether these children even existed. It's just you just read the paper. That doesn't that isn't the that isn't the research. Sometimes people confuse papers, scientific papers, with the study that lies behind the paper. So so the po- whole point about this is that there weren't any red flags. There wasn't any. There wasn't any uh, serious criticism of the paper, other than people saying, "Well, it's only only twelve children," and the whole point of it is that because nobody knew what the truth of what lay behind it was, nobody knew that he'd altered the histories and the diagnoses of these children and misrepresented the laboratory tests that were done in the paper. Yep, absolutely. So that's exactly what I was getting down to now. So how did you get that hunch of that something was wrong? Because you were also just a member of public and you were also just reading the paper, isn't it? I, I, yeah, I read it, but I was concerned because I'd previously investigated a different mm-hmm. vaccine. Um, and in the course of that earlier investigation, I noticed that another doctor at another hospital had um, asked... His, he'd asked his well he asked his junior doctors to go into the records of the hospital to find out um, he he uh, yeah I, I I'd seen this paper when this paper was published I was working on uh, another investigation it was an earlier investigation into the diphtheria test mm-hmm. and the pertussis vaccine and that had been launched on basic on the basis of a paper published in a medical journal in the early 1970s, which described a series of children who, it was claimed, had developed um, brain injuries within 14 days of vaccination. And so when it came to the Andrew Wakefield MMR paper in The Lancet in 1998, which I saw at the time but didn't look at for a few years, he too had claimed that the uh, issue was around a time link of 14 days. And I looked at that and I thought, well, that why would that be? Why would two different vaccines uh, with two different technologies uh, both have a time to onset within 14 days? 
And I suspected at that time that this whole thing was uh, executed for lawyers for uh, uh, because they for people who were trying to get a lawsuit going because it wasn't credible. These are two completely different vaccine technologies. And um, as it happens, as I subsequently found out, is that that it is it would be extraordinarily unusual for anyone who received an MMR vaccine to suffer any kind of adverse event within days of the shot because just simply because of the, the, the technology simply because viruses take a long time to to grow in their um in uh once once they've been injected the viruses take a long time to multiply so that's exactly what's so astonishing that you were able to connect basically these two stories which have nothing to do with each other but they actually do have something to do with each other and that is something that uh, really strikes me of your approach so uh, how would you perhaps maybe uh, describe your process um, that others can also pick up on? So when you're comparing the irregularities or too many similarities in between stories, that something is wrong. Well, as I say, it was the, it was the, it was the fact that these two papers, one was involved the DTP vaccine, which is a, the, and the suspect component was the, the pertussis element, the whooping cough element. And this uh, was what well, this vaccine did produce uh, immediate reactions, fever, and um, sometimes seizures in in some children as a result of fever on the even on the same day as the shot was received. But that wasn't true with the MMR shot. The 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 side effects of uh, MMR shots wouldn't wouldn't occur that quickly. So I I noticed that and I thought, well, that's um, that's obviously something that uh, is suspicious because you wouldn't expect to see that happen. But but uh, there really wasn't any obvious way that I would be able to um, prove that there was something going on there because this point I was making about biomedical publishing is that, that the papers are all contained simply information that the ordinary reader can't get behind because the the children in this particular paper, or in both papers, and patients generally in bio, well, all, always in biomedical publishing, are anonymized. So, how would you ever be able to find that there was there was something unusual going on in one of these papers when the whole thing's um, the whole thing is uh, anonymous? You can't you can't identify the patients. So, if you can't identify the patients, you in a in a paper, you would find it very hard to um, very hard to understand how it was done. Uh, so during your investigations, uh, have you received any legal pushback uh, from the pharmaceutical industries or the personal lawyers of, uh, of the Andrew Wakefield? Well, the, 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 the author of this paper, this fraudulent paper, uh, this Dr. Andrew Wakefield, he, he way back now, quite a few years ago, threatened. Well, in fact, he did. He he started a lawsuit against um, the newspaper, the Sunday Times, against the Channel Four network, the television network, where I had um, done an hour-long primetime investigation on this subject uh, against me personally over my website, uh, and he immediately sought to have that lawsuit frozen so that he could go around telling his supporters that he was suing us, but not actually sue us. So we sued him to force him to come to court 
against us. And if he wouldn't come to court, then he would have to abandon his claims. And so he did abandon his claims. And so that was then. And then when the British Medical Journal published a big series by me, he sued over that in the United States in Texas. And we pointed out that there was no basis to sue us in Texas. So he abandoned the lawsuit. And um, well, no, he didn't abandon the lawsuit. The court ordered that the lawsuit was uh, was um, was failed. The the, the 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 court threw out the lawsuit. So so he's tried on several occasions and um, to sue us and failed. So this whole because the story. Yeah. True. So this whole scam it has obviously very very um, sort of wide ranging repercussions uh, of for the uh, vaccine denial. Uh, maybe not vaccine hesitancy as such. But um, from your point of view, what sort of systems do we need to prevent um, sort of and punish also the high stakes scams and uh, arising fraudulent campaigns? Well, the, the problem we have is the, is the problems of peer review and reproducibility as being the, the, um, the hallmarks of biomedical publishing and peer review. People think it's some kind of test of the truth of publishing and uh, it's not it's merely a test of plausibility as i say and reproducibility is the idea that it doesn't matter if a paper is is wrong because somebody else will correct it so if somebody publishes a paper which makes a particular proposition and claims particular findings in research then other people will then come along and seek to reproduce that finding or those findings and this, this, therefore, is the mechanism by which science progresses and validates itself. But unfortunately, the Wakefield case, which, as I say, many scientists and doctors regard as the most consequential medical fraud of 100 years, in 100 years, um, it exposes being false. And nothing has changed since the 1990s when he did this thing. There's been no consequential improvements because at the end of the day, you cannot tell whether a paper, whether a piece of biomedical research is true unless you've got access to the original data. And by that, I mean in, in cases like this, in a clinical case series, that would include the diagnosis of the patients, the histories of the patients, the blood tests that were done, any any, any other tests like... Um, uh, um, biopsies taken from tissue and things like that, what those results are. And until there's a mechanism by which when papers are challenged, when research is challenged as being suspicious that that information can be inspected, there is very little that can be done that will improve things. And the the plain truth of it is that the biomedical publishers, which are big corporations, uh, I mean, I, just to give you a comparison, the, the newspaper I've worked for all these years, the, the Sunday Times, part of Times newspapers in London, and that, that the profits from Times newspapers are 1% of the turnover of the, of the newspapers, whereas the publishers of biomedical journals very often make 20% profit on their turnover. So these are big corporations bringing these um, journals out, and they make an awful lot of money, and they want to keep them. They don't want to spend their money carrying out investigations as to whether a particular piece of research is, uh, has been fabricated or falsified because it would eat into their profits and would use up a lot of staff time, so they don't want to do it. So we're in this situation where biomedical publishing, in my judgment, 
is inherently untrustworthy because there's no way that you can test the truth of the claims being made. And that's really the the takeaway message of the Wakefield fraud is that people are able to do this. And as I say in The Doctor Who Fooled the World, my book, I say, I mean, the key, the key sentence in many ways of the book is when I say right at the beginning, if he could do what he did, and I'll show you what he did, who else is doing what in the hospitals and laboratories that we may one day look to for our lives? And I said that before the, um, the uh, pandemic began, that's what I wrote. And now, I mean, of course, the whole world is looking to hospitals and laboratories for their lives. Um, yeah, so uh, this uh, specific case, it goes way beyond the scientific uh, incredibility, uh, but it actually feeds into our deepest fears about the health. And uh, as, as you mentioned before, vaccines, when we're, being, we're, when we're children, we're afraid of needles. And of course, we are really uh, afraid for our children to get uh some, some sort of really uh, bad adverse reaction to them. So how does the psychological component of uh, the society contribute to spread of uh, belief in these scams? Because his research has been proven wrong, hasn't it? Well, by me. But also, yeah, but, but also by, yeah, by other that. scientists who could not replicate his results. So why... Uh, so, yeah, but yeah, but no, but nobody took any notice of that because scientists failing to replicate his results. I mean, the, the public is just simply not impressed by that kind of information. That's right. So, uh, yeah. So basically, the the spotlight that you provided for this case really put it across uh, for the population, hasn't it? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure to what extent it has. Uh, certainly, vaccination rates recovered. Uh, in the UK, and there's been a lot of, uh, and the the way media covers these kind of stories now has changed as a result of the investigation. But I don't think anything fundamental ha- has altered in the sense that um, we're still seeing when there are rare opportunities for the right kind of information to come to light that there are papers and research being being released that is false, and not only false but intentionally false. There are a couple of papers that were were published and retracted last June by the New England Journal of Medicine and also by The Lancet on the same day. Um, oh, and these were papers on uh, treatments and outcomes in the coronavirus pandemic, where a particular research group had claimed hundreds of hospitals and thousands of patients as being their their um, their source material, and the scientists complained and said, oh, we don't really believe this. And uh, But it was three journalists for the Guardian newspaper, one in, one in London, one in Australia, and one in the United States, who, who basically went on Google and online and started looking into the, the names of the authors of this, these papers and um, the, or the company they were working for and showed that um, the whole thing was uh, essentially a scam. And both papers were retracted within hours of each other on the same day in June of last year. So even even on topics involving this pandemic, there is still considerable misconduct going on behind the scenes, behind these scientific papers um, that is, is, in my view, not being addressed and, and not being um, dealt with by the 
publishers of science. We all assume that when a new science is announced and there's some something in the news that says that some group at some university or in some laboratory has found something that 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 it's true, but very often it isn't. But the timescales have really improved, haven't they? On uh, on timescales of detection of the fraud because of the open access, because of a uh, larger well, what, amount why, of... Yeah. Why, 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 I don't see why open access would detect fraud particularly. Because in this case... Uh, with the data was accessible to researchers, so they did independent validation of the results. I cannot validate them. Open. It's the fact that the the, the things open access. The the, the paper by papers are not papers may include data, but they're not the data from the study because the data from a even from this twelve child series would 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 fill um, uh, hundreds of pages. For a, for a big study, so a phase three clinical trial of a vaccine, you'd be talking about thousands and thousands of pages of data. Uh, nobody gets to, you wouldn't you wouldn't get an opportunity to to look at that. That's not open open access publishing. The open access publishing is just is just people putting things into the public domain that hasn't been peer reviewed. So that doesn't that no, there's no there's nothing to be gained from that. I mean, some people say, "Well, okay, it gets we can we can see it before it's published," but that that's not a check on the truth of the of the paper, if any anything but. Because while peer review is a test of plausibility, if you don't even have a test of plausibility and you're still reading a paper that hasn't been peer reviewed, that is not going to give you any better sense of security that the information is true. Yes, yeah, absolutely right. So perhaps data accessibility and being able to doubt what you see from the first sight um, could be one of the first uh, sort of steps on uh, looking into the fraudulent claims. Uh, right. So how has this investigation and the writing of this book, so putting everything together, impacted you personally? Well, it's just a lot of work, really. A lot of work <laughs> and a lot of spending time at home and um and uh, sitting here at the moment because of this lockdown, I can't go out, can't go anywhere. Um, so that's mostly how it's impacted me. It's a lot of work. I got sued, and that took up an enormous amount of time. And, oh dear. Um, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's hard work, but you know I had to do it. I mean, once I'd started it, I could hardly just abandon it. So um, yeah, yeah, I can't say it's uh, it's just a, it's just a working life, really. Brilliant. Okay, so we've taken up a lot of your time and I've learned a lot, oh, definitely. Good. Good, good. All right. so, so can I ask you what you're working on now? Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm about to publish uh, a novel, um, although I'm having to do it uh, as an e-book on Amazon to start with because obviously with the publishing industry is all shut down. So that's going to come out probably in about three weeks' time. It's called Blind Trial and it's also in a, in a vaccine uh, context. And um, that's going to be published, yeah, in in probably about three weeks' time, I should think. Excellent. So, where can our listeners find out more information about your book, either physical or ebook? Well, they they can uh, they can go to Amazon or they can go to my website, briandeer.com, or put my name into Google and uh, Brian Deer, D E E R, Delta Echo Echo Romeo, and um, yeah, they can find the stuff and see what it's all about. Excellent. So thank you very much for joining me today. Pleasure. Nice talking to you.